Welcome to the Illuminating Lives podcast. I'm your host, Israel Smith, and I'm here to share conversations with you about what it means to illuminate our own lives, to be comfortable in our vulnerability, to truly love and value ourselves, and then to be able to use that to light up our own life and shine that light with the people we love and care about the most. This is going to be messy, it's going to be vulnerable, and it's going to be a whole lot of fun. Welcome. Let's get started. Boy, are you in for a treat today. I've got a wonderful conversation with a lovely Irishman with one of those lilting and delicious voices to listen to, a gentleman by the name of Charlie McCarran. We talk about so many amazing topics in this conversation, from changing careers, from dealing with chronic health issues, how he met and fell in love with his wife, how he's overcome some incredible challenges, how we both contend with and deal with our anger. It's a really beautiful chat, but I will warn you at the outset, there's a lot of swearing. Charlie and I do drop quite a lot of uh, four-letter characterizations during this chat, so if you have children listening, this might be one to put the headphones in for. I also need to say that this interview has been in the can for months and months. We recorded this in November last year, and it's taken me until now to get it finally out and ready for publication. So I would like to say... Thank you, Charlie, for your patience and thank you, listeners. I know there's been a bit of a gap since my last episode and once I wrap up this season of interviews, I will be getting back onto the solo episodes and I plan to do a big breakdown of everything that's been going on for the last few months. There's been a few wobbles, there's been some amazing lessons and breakthroughs and I can't wait to unpack it all with you, but for now, I'm back on the horse and I'm excited to be sharing this interview with you. Enjoy, buckle in and welcome back. G'day and welcome back to Dad's Guide to Thrive. I am so excited to be sitting down today with Charlie McCarran, a man I know through the TCP course that Jim Fortin runs and we've kind of connected up a little bit outside of that course. Charlie is an Irishman by birth and by accent but now lives in Queensland in Australia and uh, you know has a wife, has two kids and has just recently gone through a massive career shift after working quite a variety of careers actually when I was going through his notes from beforehand you know from like software engineer agricultural engineer working as a journalist doing all sorts of cool stuff and now has found himself um, in real estate which is a pretty uncertain move man I'm really really looking forward to having a chat because there's so much we can dig into about family about dads about career changes about all that kind of stuff as we go so Charlie welcome so much thanks for having for having a chat with me thanks but it's um, a pleasure to be on. Like I say, following the intro, it sounds like I've had more starts in Firelab. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny though. Like I look back, this is career number four for me in the work that I'm doing now. And I look at it and I go, well, it didn't sound like, like as I was going through it, it didn't feel like I was chopping and changing. And I'm sure it was probably the same for you, right? Like we change careers when the time's right or the motivation's right or whatever the circumstances are. Absolutely. But you never think in the back of your mind, like, I'm just going to make a point of doing a heap of different crap and never sticking with anything. Like, it's not how it tends to work most of the time. No, and I think that's, you know, it's funny when you only when you get to your late 30s or maybe even your 40s, like I'm 41 now, but it takes you then to realize that you actually never wanted a career. You wanted experience. And that was, looking back now, I can see that that's probably why I changed 
you know, many times I'd do something and I'd change it and have a go at something else. And maybe that's a characteristic trait or it's a, but I think the biggest thing out of that is don't get held down by you, people gets, oh, you should stay at one thing. Well, no, you shouldn't. If you, uh, if you don't enjoy it, change it. And that's been yeah. my mantra my I, whole I, life. I love that. I actually, I remember saying to a friend of mine, um, years ago, I said like, life's too short to do shit you don't enjoy. Absolutely. And I've done plenty of shit I don't enjoy. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> There's been jobs yeah, we all have. that I didn't like and you stick at it. <laughs> Yeah, but it's unavoidable. But like, if you ultimately sort of always asking that question of like, well, what would make me happy, or what would bring some joy into my day, or what's something I'm really interested in learning about, or whatever the next step is, it sort of makes sense as you go through, right? So it's not like this crazy pizza of you know different things, unless you look back at it in the condensed way that I just did. At the time, each step made sense. And I guess I, mean, I don't know what the education system in Australia. Obviously, I didn't go to school here. I barely went to school in Ireland, but <laughs> all the times I did go, it was it was drummed into you from a young age. Like you had to, uh, you know, have a CV that showed consistency. A CV being your um, curriculum vitae resume. Yeah, like a resume, whatever. Yeah, yeah. resume. Thanks, mate. You know, it had to be this thing that was uh, constant, and you had to show consistency, and you had to show, like, fuck it. If you don't want to do it, move on to something else. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel Hard like there's a lot of people in the world who, no, no, not at all. I'm, I'm equally apt to drop a few in there, but it's just, it's really fascinating when I think about like what I see in dads I speak to and like they sort of go, oh, I really want to try something new, but oh no, I can't, I can't. There's so many reasons why yeah. I can't do it. I'm like, well, yeah. why not? Like are those reasons real or are they just made up in your head, you know? I think for a lot of us, they appear to be real, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, tell us a bit about your family. You're a dad, obviously. Two kids, lovely wife. Tell us a bit about them. Um, yeah, two boys. Finn turned five there this November. Um, he's five going on 15. He's got a first child syndrome. You know, the world revolves around him. And that's you know, a parenting <laughs> lesson you learn. I think every parent goes through that. They shower them with lots of attention. And then, yeah, he, he's a scream, though. Like, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't change him for the world. Um, he's five, goes to start school. Well, we'll start prep in January, which is another weird thing here in Australia. They start school in January. In Ireland, it's September. They, they change the school year. It's something I'm trying right. to get my head around here. Um. <laughs> And then I got Hamish, who's three in January. So, yeah, we're not far off that now. Jesus, this year's going like a flash in the pan. Um, he's three in January. Um, Hamish, how do I put this? Yeah, Hamish has got a significant impairment, disability. Call it what you want, label it what you want. But basically, he's got a significant condition on his metabolic side. So his body effectively doesn't make cholesterol, which, you know, you really need cholesterol for development growth. So, you know, he's got his own set of challenges like we all do, I suppose. But, um, yeah, that's a bit of a curveball that came at us. But, um, like I say, he's three now. He's come an awfully long way. Um, and like all three-year-olds now, he should be sleeping right now, middle of the day. And what's he doing? Kicking and screaming and protesting. So <laughs> he's fine. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And so oh, and I suppose... Oh, um, sorry. Yes, my wife, Kit. <laughs> yeah, I suppose we better mention her. Otherwise, if she listens to this, she'd be a bit miffed that you went, oh, oh yeah, by the way. I, she's a bloody glue that holds it all together, I can tell you. Um, so when I first came to Rocky, I came to Rocky, I came to Australia and... I first came out in 2007 or 2008. I can't exactly remember, but I came out for two weeks. Um, I went back to Ireland and it was in my uh, it was in my blood then. I just wanted to get back. Couldn't wait to get back. So 2009, um, June, I think 2009, uh, I looked online. I was working as a software developer in Belfast with a company. I looked online. Tickets were reasonably priced um and i booked a one-way ticket and two weeks later i was on a plane so i went home and told my my girlfriend at the time god bless her i said i'll see you in six months um here we are 13 years later so still... <laughs> wow yeah and that was before the days of you know video calling and zooms and all that face-to-face stuff so yeah, there must have been yeah, a pretty challenging call, like uh Text telephone call back then <laughs> yeah it was yeah, right. um, so that was the that was the plan. I came out here for a couple of weeks. Um, came back. Uh, obviously, in sort of in two thousand nine, came back. Well, what turned out to be permanently, but at that time, I was only com- coming out for um, you know, six months, twelve months at best. Mm. And that was the path of life would take you. I, I um, I travelled a lot of this country. I've seen, at hazard to say, I've seen more of this country than some people who live here. Well, probably a lot of people who live here, which is the opportunity you're afforded when you're a backpacker. You by the nature of the term, you travel a lot. And yeah. I made it to Rocky, which was never on my radar as a place to settle down and raise a family, but that's where I met my wife, so that all changed. She's not from here. She's from a little town south of here. Um, she's on a, on a cattle property south of here, a town called Monto. Anyway, um, yeah, we've been married seven years now. Turned out the other day we both forgot our anniversary for the seventh year running, I think. The only um, <laughs> the only year we both remembered is uh, this the first maybe the second, but ever since then it just sort of comes and goes and it's like hey, how many years is that now? Seven. Shit. So yeah, That's she's amazing. the that holds it all together, mate. She's um yeah, I'll be lost without her, mate. There's not much more I can. I'm say really curious because I've I've been to Rockhampton, so you know it's a. Uh, it's a very, very cattle kind of centric town. Like you kind of drive into the front of town and they've got a big roundabout with statues of big bulls and cows and stuff on it. Like it's all about that. That's how, how, like, how did you two meet? And, and what was it that just, I mean, obviously, you know, you find a girl and there's a spark and you're like, I just want to stay here and hang out with this girl. But, but it's, it's a very specific part of Australia to sort of get really hooked into. So I'm just curious, like, how did you guys cross paths and then was it super fast that you went, oh, this is amazing, let's get together or was it a bit tenuous for a while, did some more traveling? Uh, it was very much uh, part B. I didn't travel much, um, but it was definitely B. It wasn't, you know, a whirlwind taking off. Um, you know, it was a kid, kid likes to think things through. He likes to evaluate every opportunity, every possible scenario that could eventuate. Classic overthinker. Um, weighs it up. Ways the goods, the bads, thinks about it for a week, changes her mind, goes back to part A, you know, so to say it took 
persistence and tenacity on my behalf is a fucking understatement. Um, <laughs> so at that particular time, it's a funny, it's a funny world. At that particular time, I was working. I wasn't I was working. Yeah, well, I was actually. I was working at um in a coal mine of all things. At Mara, which is a little town west of Rocky, southwest of Rocky. Um, there's a coal mine there, and one of my really, really good friends is a. He owns a cattle property, which is near there, you know. Um, so in a roundabout kind of way, in my backpacking tour, I was catching up with this friend of mine, Adam Gunthorpe. Um, he's a Brahmin stud breeder. If you know anything about cattle, Brahmins are the big floppy ears, terrible fertility. Um, <laughs> I hope Adam listens to this because he'll really appreciate that job. Um, anyway, I was on this cattle property and I was working in this coal mine and I'd come to Rocky and I'd see Kate and we'd have a beer, have dinner. I'd go back to Mara. Um, slowly and slowly I wore her down and eventually she came to Mara to visit me. So that's like a two and a half hour drive. It's not, you know, right around the corner. This is regional Queensland mm. right here. Um, yeah, so I finally wore it out. She came out to Mara and eventually she got sick of driving out to Mara. I got sick of driving to Rocky on my days off. So I transferred with work and we moved in together. But that was like a two-year process, probably. Yeah. Fair from, enough. From go to woe. But we met at a pub in Rocky. So there you go. I came to Rocky to catch up with Adam, the Brahmin breeder. Um, yeah, we were in a pub in Rocky. And I don't specifically recall the details alcohol may have been a factor um but i think i told her something in french like she had a nice bomb but in french and she was very <laughs> taken by this irish cowboy who spoke french <laughs> <laughs> i love it so, that's great yeah anyway and so like you say so it was, it was a long process you know uh, and then you eventually went all right let's get a place together and then as we know now the rest is history you married and have two that's boys right. i mean lesser men would have given up funny. obviously <laughs> <laughs> i think it's a beautiful yeah a beautiful statement of like you said resilience and persistence well mm -hmm. done um so you know, I, yeah, I'm also aware that, that part of Queensland has, yeah, really strong mining industry, right? So I know you've been working in mines recently and then you've just shifted completely to a complete unknown industry for you, selling houses, working in real estate. Correct. So tell me what went on with that thought process for you to go from the way you described it in our chat beforehand, something very stable, very secure to something that's very unknown, very uncertain. So I guess the real nuts and bolts of that is go, it goes back to TCP, which is a program that you and I have both been through. We're right. still, still involved in it to this day. Um, I have had a lot of careers over my short life. I, I, you know, I've had to go up more things than most people will in a lifetime. But real estate was one of those things that I thought about doing when I was 18, 19, you know, sales. Mm -hmm. um, but it had the stigma in Ireland. It had the stigma about sales. Oh, them wankers in sales, you know, getting around in their flash motor cars and talking on their bloody phones all the time. Right. You know, it's a stigma around it, you know what I mean? And, and you have to, in, in sales or of any description, whether it's real estate or if you're selling bloody pens, you have to be putting yourself out there. And rejection is a huge risk, if you want to call it that. 
Mm. So it's funny, I was never ready to do it until I was 40. I, you know, I thought about it for 20 years, give or take. Mm. Um, I never, never done it. And through TCP, I suppose that's shone a light on a lot of uh, blind spots, call them limitation, limiting beliefs, whatever you want to call it, whatever your label is for, for your reasons yeah. not to do it. Um, I decided finally that, you know, I'm in a job of mine and it was a good job. Don't get me wrong. I was very grateful for it. I think that's the only thing TCP taught me is to be grateful for what you do have. Um, but I wasn't enjoying it. You know, it was for, for a lot of people, the job I left was the, the dream job. It was a roster job, which means you work effectively half a year. So it's, you do five days on, you have five off, you know, five days off in a row. Who does that? But yeah. that's not uncommon in mining. It's really, really common in mining because the shifts are 12 hours and travels a lot. Well, it wasn't for me because my job was in town. So effectively, it was a dream job. You work half a year, you get paid in excess of $120,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and you work half a year. That's, you know, and with all the benefits, sick leave, annual leave, superannuation, phone supplied, you know, you name it. Yeah. But you can't do shit you don't like. So TCP mm-hmm. showing a big light on me hiding, I think it's probably the word I'd use. You know, it's easy to stay in a job like that and security. What's security? Security is a myth, Jim would tell you. It's an illusion. It doesn't exist. And mm. whilst ever, you know, coal is facing significant pressure from various corners of the media and whatever whatever you want to call it, like it, it's it's under the pump, but it's not going away in the short term. So security is some regard it's there. It's secure and as, as whatever secure can be. But mate, I was just grinding, you know, I literally was grinding, going to work, grinding, being there. And TCP teaches you a lot of things. And one of the things it teaches you about is to let go of attachment, you know, so even that taught me, and it probably took me six months working through TCP and working through going to that job, just to let go of the shit that annoyed me about the job or let go of the things that someone at work would be, for all intents and purposes, someone really difficult to work with. Mm. And TCP taught me to let go of that and, and taught me a lot about, if it doesn't pertain to you, don't get bogged down in it, which was great right. for a while. You know, you sort of, it's like a band-aid, you know, but in the end, man, I just couldn't, even though I could go to work and the people who were giving me the shits or had issues, whatever, I could deal with all that. I still couldn't get past this. I'm not doing what I want to do. This is not. Right. And some of it come back to money. Some of it come back to job satisfaction. Some of it came back to the bigger picture when they put you in the box and whatever your time frame is, if it's 10 years, if it's 10 minutes, when you leave this planet, are you going to have achieved the things you wanted? So there's so many things mm. going through my head. And in the end, it was just, a, it was just a jump. Just, you've got to try because if you don't try, you're going to stay in this job and you're going to be shitty, bitter, twisted, resentful. As much as you can learn the tools to let go of that rubbish. For me, it was a case of clarity. It was a case of mm. 
let go of the fear. The fear is what's keeping you trapped. And TCP is not free. You know, there is an investment in TCP. You have to invest. You know, you and I both know what it costs. It's not it's not it's not a free program. So but that transformation for me began with that transaction. I'd committed that money to doing the program. And I wasn't gonna just sit there on my on my hands at the finish of TCP and go, Oh well that's good. I can deal with idiots at work, but I uh, I'm not gonna do what I wanna do. So I just decided to jump into it two feet, commit, and just have at it, just give it a red hot crack. Love it. And, you know, succeed or fail, at least you can go to your grave knowing that you gave it a go. Yeah. And, and I you think learned a lot along the way, right? That's I mean, right. This, is, this is really... But then... Every time I've made... Go on. Sorry, sorry, you go. Oh, I was going to say, every time I've made a career change, and I've gone from IT to professional photography to full-time travel and starting a health business to now becoming a coach like every time it's come from that place of this doesn't quite feel right this doesn't feel right i don't feel like i don't feel excited every day and what i've realized the quality of the moments we have in our day then leads to how we feel about our days and the quality of our days in a row leads us to think about how we feel about our life overall. And if you feel miserable in more than a few moments every day, or if you feel like you're out of alignment, or you feel like you're just not quite doing something that you're meant to be doing, or you're living a lie because you're hiding, or you're not trying that thing you've had in your mind for 20 years or whatever it is, like it starts to eat away at you and no amount of money and no amount of uh, personal development work can save you from the fact that you ultimately need to take action and take that first step to resolve that alignment issue, right? That's right. I mean, one of the, one of the things I picked up on, uh, you know, in this little conversation just now, like you, you said, it doesn't matter, you know, what to do when you go to your grave, success or failure. I mean, the first thing I think about that now, which is not something I, I didn't have this mindset 12 or 15 months ago, but now my first thing is, well, what is success? What does that mean to you? What do you what do you make right. success mean to you? And that's not a question directly at you, but I mean putting that out there to anybody who's listening. No, you're right. Well, yeah. What what is your what is your measure of success? Like, and that was for me, you know, looking at a secure job in mine, and you know, with with good money and all the rest of the conditions and all the rest of the things that go with it. Is that success? At one point in my life, it absolutely was. But mm. it doesn't fit where I want to be. Things change, your goals change. And I think that's, as a dad, that's one of the hardest things. Not just dad, a family man, called a family man. You can, and my wife works yeah. too, so it's not like I'm just the sole breadwinner because that's not the case. I couldn't do what Kate does. She puts in so much time with the kids and she still has a job and gets kids ready. I'm fucking flattered getting myself ready. You know, she. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No, I'm, and I'm, I'm, that's, I'm not saying oh, that like, 100%, you man. know, um, so going back to what I'm saying, like, it's not about just being a, a dad, it's a family man or being the sole breadwinner. Um, the thing is my success or my measure of success now has changed. And, and I knew staying in a corporate job, working for a company and I was capped. My salary was just going to be, if I'm lucky, you know, and, and if I'm lucky, 
2.5% year on year increase, you know, in, in, the, in the downturn right. through mining, and I've been in mining for 13 years. In the downturn, it was like six, probably five years, probably, where, where it was bugger all. Like, you were just lucky mm. to keep your job. I mean, that was fucking yep. heartbreaking, just turn up to work when there was no work. There's nothing worse than turn up to a job when there's no work. So, anyway, wow. what I'm getting at is a measure of success has changed for me now. And, and I put that out to anybody who's listening. Like, what does success mean to you? Is it your own level or your own measure of success? Or is it because someone else told you that that's what successful looks like? That's amazing. So tell me, Charlie, what is your level of or what is your definition of success for you now? Well, I think the ultimate goal, and this is where I work from these days, is, is you have to have the, the dream goal and you strip it back from there. So the dream goal is to wake up on a Tuesday morning and go, hey, what do I want to do today? And then go and do it. That's the goal, to wake mm -hmm. up and go, what do I want to do? And go and do it. Should it be fishing, running? Go and watch my son at school cricket. What do I want to do? And go and do it. Mm -hmm. And have the freedom and the financial. And that's one of the things that Jim, who's our mentor through TCP, said um, more than once, and it's, it resonates a lot with me, is that a lot of people want the freedom, but they don't want to earn it. So, mm. like, I'm quite prepared to knuckle down for the next five. Oh, I've got a 10-year plan, to be honest with you, but to knuckle down for those 10 years and then I'll be 50 and and I'll be able to choose what I want to do. I mean, I'm quite happy to work towards that goal. I probably should have started this, like I said, 20 years ago, but you can't change what you can't change. <laughs> and there's no point in bashing uh -huh. yourself up about it either. <laughs> no, you're right. My old man used to say, you can't put an old head on young shoulders. So the life experiences that you and I have both lived to get us to this point and to get us to this awareness or this realisation that we get to define our own measure of success groundbreaking but i don't think either of us really would have understood that in our early 20s when we first starting to work you know because yeah, like, you're too caught up in the bullshit you're too caught up in the right and i look at a lot of young dads now like and i'm talking dads who are like 25 ish and i'm glad i didn't have kids when i was 25 like i was i'm late to the party i'm finn's five so I was 35 when he was born, nearly 36, mm. which is, you know, by today's standards. I mean, if I go by my grandfather's standards, um, I was a grandfather when I was having, you know, because he had kids at 18, 19, you know. Um, but in this yeah. day and age, even to have kids at 40, is probably just pushing the envelope a little bit in terms of what society thinks is a good age to have kids. But I'm glad I didn't have kids at 25 because the things that you learn through life experience at 25 i wasn't ready at 35 mm. so i wasn't sure but anyway <laughs> <laughs> well anyway i look yeah, at younger I dads think... and they're under the pump they're 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 under the pump a little bit with stuff that they shouldn't be right so i'm curious about you know you mentioned your son hamish has his you know his disability his condition his genetic kind of thing that causes him a bit of grief what is what is the impact on your day-to-day -day? i mean i'm guessing three years down the road from when he was born you've adapted and gotten used to it so it's 
not even probably something you think about. But I mean, can you paint us a bit of a picture of what what impact that condition has on his life and your lives as parents and how that's impacted you as a dad? Yeah, look, um, when you look back to Hamish's early days, I mean, from the very early days when he was born in the hospital here in Rocky, for the first two weeks of his life, we would go to the hospital every, well, we live very close to the hospital, which we're quite fortunate, but we would go to the hospital every, because, you know, two weeks, no one, Kate had checked out, she'd come home, and Hamish was still in the hospital because they couldn't work out what was wrong. And we'd go to the hospital every four hours and, and feed him via an NG tube, which is a little nasogastric tube that goes up your nose into your guts, and, and that's how you get your food when you can't drink as a baby. Um, so that was the early days, like for the first two weeks before Kate and I requested, and we said, look, we need to be transferred to a metropolitan area, to a hospital to, to get to the bottom of this. So we're thankful to the nurse here in Rocky who made that suggestion to us and said, look, you guys need specialist help and you're not going to get it here. So, you know, anyway, so we ended up at the, uh, I think they've changed the name of it now, but it was called the Lady Salento in Brisbane, which is the Children's Hospital. I think it's now mm-hmm. called the Royal Children's Hospital in Brisbane. Don't quote me on that. Anyway, so we, <laughs> this is the funny thing. I grew up as a kid in Ireland watching a TV show called The Flying Doctors. Um, uh, I don't yep. know if you, anyone, your listeners would remember that, I but remember there was it. a TV show. Yeah. And fuck, here I was on the Flying Doctors. I was, I was living my childhood dream. I was now with the <laughs> Flying Doctors, except it was a flying nightmare. So they put us on a little wow. plane. Um, they flew us from Rocky straight to Brisbane. Um, landed us in the hospital there. And literally within, I would say, 48 hours, they had a fair idea what they were looking at. And there was all these telltale signs that, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but there was things all along the way that pointed to something not being right. Um, so the specialists there knew within 48 hours what they were looking at, and there's some pretty <clears throat> pretty rudimentary basic tests that you can run to confirm the suspicion. So the condition's called SLO, which is smith lemley Opitz, and what it is is your, your, um, your body doesn't make cholesterol um, from the moment of conception. So it's a genetic disorder. So... Right. From the moment of conception. For those of us. Exactly. So kids are carriers. We're not affected by it, but we're obviously carriers. Um, So Hamish had a 25% chance of being affected, 25% chance being normal, 25% chance being a carrier. And don't ask me about 25% because I didn't pay attention to biology. (laughs) But do you see what I'm saying? It was a a one in four chance of him having this condition. Um, Yep. So... What it means effectively is that your body from the moment of conception doesn't make cholesterol. And cholesterol is a huge part of any building block for a cell, an individual cell in your body that builds, etc., muscle, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so he hasn't developed as like a normal kid would be like he's three now. And he barely crawling. He army rolls to get where he wants to. Um, cognitively, he's a lot better now, but like he's not where a typical three-year-old is, he's nowhere mm-hmm. close to that. You know, we stop, we stop measuring what they call milestones fucking two and a half years ago because there's no point looking at them. It's not relevant. It's just another target that you've missed to bash yourself with. Um, yeah. Back to Brisbane. So we're in Brisbane. We get this diagnosis and, and our world fell. But I can remember as clear as day sitting in that um, 
consultation room with an army of people. Like there was specialists, there was nurses, there was counselors, there was fucking more people than I can ever want to be in a room with again. And yeah, they confirmed that it was SLO, and, and I remember just collapsing. I just remember floods of tears, unconsolable, looking at my wife, just saying I'm sorry. And I don't even know why I was fucking saying I'm sorry, but that's just what came out at the time. Um, and from there, mate, it's just a blur. Like, literally, it's a blur for the next... I can't put a time frame on it, but to give you an idea of how our lives were then in that early piece, we stayed in Brisbane for about four weeks in the hospital. Um, mm-hmm. We stayed there with the nurses and keep trying to get Hamish to, to effectively keep food down because everything you put into him, he'd, he'd regurgitate it back up. And I've since learned that that's a really common thing with um, with kids with SLO um, mm-hmm. because they can't swallow it. Not all of them, and this is the fuck thing with it, like I shouldn't say. The really hard thing with SLO is it's such a scale. Like, there is kids who've got it who are barely affected, and then there are kids who've mm. got it, and they're just 100% dependent on someone else for everything. So there's no... How do I put this? There's no definitive level of how affected you are, how unaffected you are. It's like this sliding scale, and it just could be from point A yeah. to point infinity. So Hamish wasn't able to drink, wasn't able to keep food down. And for the first 12, maybe more, 15 months, he was um, fed with a, a little pump. So everywhere we'd go with Hamish, we had to cart this pump around. Think of it like a like a disc man or a walk man. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a little pump and you got a bottle with his food in it. Tube goes into the pump, pump goes into his nose, down his nose, into his guts. And that was how we kept mm. him alive. Um, wow. So looking back now, I say that like it's no big deal and it probably wasn't a big deal, but at the time, it was huge. Like, you know, for Kate and I, we socially excluded ourselves. We didn't want to go anywhere. We didn't want to fucking see anyone because here we were with this kid that had a pump attached to him 24-7. And he didn't look yeah. pretty, you know. He's a funny little fucker now, but back in them days, man, he didn't look pretty at all. He had this big chunk of white tape stuck on his face and, and into his nose and you know it was just heart wrenching when I think about it now I mean again TCP has taught me a lot about letting go of that stuff but it, it was it was really really hard Israel it was fucking hard yeah incredibly I mean, hard I can relate to parts of this my first child was seven weeks premature and so she stayed in hospital for the first three weeks of her life because she weighed four pounds she was tiny same thing she was too young to have the the reflex of sucking she hadn't figured that bit out so she had one of those ng tubes so i completely get that you know we used to have to turn up at the hospital and tip the breast milk into the little tube that then fed into the pipe that went into her nose and off we went, you know. That was how she ate for the first little while. So I I hear that totally. But then I also, you know, I really get the sense that when you you collapsed after hearing that diagnosis and you said to Kate, I'm sorry, like I think there's two parts to that. First part is to me very obviously it's the male response to assume responsibility for everything. Oh, I was definitely guilty of that. Hugely guilty. Right, right. 
And so it's kind of that that very typical man or dad response. Oh, it's it's up to me to fix this. It's up to me to. I'll take care of it. Right. You know exactly. I brought this into the family. I got to sort it out. But the other part too is, in a way, it's like really. um, What's the word? Like prescient. Like you could kind of almost predict in a way. It's like a grieving because you're grieving the life that you thought you were going to have with a healthy child. Oh, 100%. You know, like yeah, that, that, that took me that I'm sorry. Like it was a com- right, like it's a complete shift. Like the expectations that you and Kate both had going into that pregnancy because Hamish is your second child, so you've already been down this path once before and it all worked out just dandy and you thought, oh, yeah, great. We've, we've just had a healthy child. We're going to have another healthy child. And then suddenly, crap, we've got this, you know, really, really rare genetic condition, like super rare. I'm not sure what the numbers are it's of like cases in Australia, but not many. More. Maybe one in 8,000. I can't remember. There's like a handful of cases in Australia that we're aware of. Right. That we're aware of. Yeah. And so you kind of go, well, hang on. This wasn't like on the on the plan. This wasn't part of the arrangement, you know. So, so that grieving process is really real too, right, where you have to make peace with, we're not going to have the experience with our second child that we thought and our family is going to forever look a little different. So that's, to me, that was what popped up as soon as you said the words, I'm sorry. I was like, yeah, of course he is. Yeah. Of uh, course. But it's not, and part of it's like a, you know, and I want to help and I want to fix it and I want to, you know, I want you to know that I'm sorry this has happened for us. But part of it too is like for yourself. Absolutely. I mean, and it's funny that you say the grieving thing. That That, that is 100% with hindsight looking back now. I mean, I became aware of that probably 12 months into Hamish's life that I'd been grieving for 12 months. And typically, mm. you know, another male default is I don't need anyone. I'll just suck it up and get on with it. <laughs> Fucking yeah. say, say who? Psychologist? Nah, mate. I don't need to talk to him. Thanks for your offer, but I'll just keep plodding on here. Thanks for your help. Right. You know? <laughs> it's... So common, man. Like, and I, I, I've spoken to that many people about this exact thing. I just think if there was like, if I could make one change while I'm here on the planet, it's just to help men understand that asking for help is strength, not weakness. That, you know, that like accepting that there are some things we just can't figure out on our own. Like it's, I was just, I was chatting to um, to my coach Lisa Carpenter the other day on her podcast. I love she Lisa. With me God, she's amazing. She's amazing. Yeah, yeah, she's fabulous, right? So it's a little pocket rocket, and you know, like an ass kicking dynamo that's about five <laughs> foot nothing. And and she regularly, like, I get coached by her privately to you know to TCP where we both met her. But you know, she regularly hands my ass to me and says, "Oh, by the way, I've just kicked the shit out of this for you," but. In that conversation with her, we were talking about the fact I realized like there's a reason men have the stereotype of never wanting to bloody ask for directions when they're driving somewhere because we think we can get it all sorted ourselves. Yeah, we do. But um, reality is we, we can't always though. Look, I, I wear two shoes on this. I think, I think, and perfectly speaking, this is just me that doesn't apply to anybody else and you're interpreted how you want. At that time... I didn't want to ask for help, and that was definitely a male um, default position, call it ingrained conditioning, whatever you want to call it. You know, you watch your peers growing up, you're so involved. I mean, 
you're you're a byproduct, aren't you? It just becomes this generational thing that's handed down after generation after generation, you know, and yeah, and we we don't want to ask for help. Then, I guess the other issue is that sometimes we get too tangled up in needing help and becoming the victim. So there's there's two shoes mm. here, and 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 I wore both of them. One of them was, "Fuck you, I'll do this on my own. Get out of my way. I'll do it on my own." Right. And the other one is, you get caught up in this victim mentality of, "Why me? Why did this happen to me? This is not fair. This, I did not deserve this. What did I do? You know, you get in, this 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 chatter goes on in your yeah, head. Yeah, right. Where you become, and this is again something that that, that Jim and Lisa and uh, Coach Aishel, you know. All of the coaches in TCP have taught me that, and not just they don't speak to me like they speak to the group or they talk to the people in the hot seat. I mean, I've learned so much listening to other people about me personally, and I did get involved in a victim mentality and feeling shit and feeling sorry for myself. So, I just think it's important to be aware of that. Like, mm. yes, ask for help 100% ask for help, but don't get addicted to needing the help. Right. It's like in a way, I think it's sort of, to me, that that whole conversation is summed up in being responsible in your own life. Oh, what are you right? going to be responsible to me, the, for? The, <laughs> right. Like the concept of responsibility is the polar opposite to the, to the, the, the concept of being a victim. You know, like you're, if you're being a victim, everything's happening to you. Like you say, it's the whole kind of woe is me self-pity story, but it's also the you know, refusing to accept that you have a choice and believing that you just have to roll with whatever circumstances get handed to you and that there's no there's no agency, there's no power to make a new choice, take a new path, right? That's but then the flip side of that of being responsible in your own life, it really is coming back to that concept of, well, I get to make a new choice. I can be responsible for how I feel right now. That's I can right. be responsible for the for the tools that I've got and the tools that I haven't got and seeking the help I need to build my skill set so I can manage better. Absolutely. And yeah. And and with that too as well, just like you said about, you know, the skill set and the choice. Sometimes we personally, and I can say it happened to me so many times when I'd be you know, because Hamish would be awake all hours of the night, like he would literally sleep for two hours and then he's awake for two and then sleep for an hour awake again. And because he had so much trouble with his reflux and his guts and everything else, like, you know, so I was sleep deprived. And then you go into this pattern of choosing to feel shit um, and just victim mentality, but I'm fucking tired. I just need rest. I'm tired. And it was actually a fellow here in Rockhampton, a really good friend of mine, um, Dan. Mm. Dan Withers is a is a isn't a CrossFit coach here in Rocky, but he's also an NLP master practitioner. He's invested right. he's invested hours of his life, you know, better than himself and and he taught me a bra- a breath technique four seven eight. I mean, it's um it's something that he, he taught me. This is pre-TCP before I got involved with Jim and mm. the coaches but that choice word you talk about like he taught me the ability to, to choose at 3 o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep and your son's really 
you know upset and you're cranky and you're emotional and your whole headspace is completely mushed up what choice are you going to make do you choose to feel like that or do you choose to change that and that hit me like a two before between the eyes i had a choice i didn't have to feel yeah I mean, don't get me wrong, this this is something that takes practice. You don't just decide at three o'clock in the morning, right oh, there we go. I'll change that choice. <laughs> yeah. Why is everyone so cranky? He's just a baby. Give him you know, fuck it doesn't work like that. <laughs> three o'clock in the morning, you're ready to throw him out the window. <laughs> you are. But yeah. then you get this a couple of seconds later, you get this moment, you go, you know what? Hey, in the heat of the moment. And then it gets you get and I call that the shortening of the window. So between that, with practice, you lose your shit, you get cranky, and then three minutes later you realize, I don't have to choose that. And with practice, you can yeah. shorten that window, and it goes from like three minutes to 0.3 of a nanosecond. Right. So you can choose, but the practice is what makes the difference between losing your shit and then realizing you've lost your shit and then changing how you feel to realize Oh, there's a trigger happening here. There's a trigger coming up. Here comes mm. the trigger. Bang, gone. Got the trigger before it even happened. Yeah. But that only comes with practice. Yeah. It's the, no, you're right. And it's like, you know, I, I have a, a thing I say to my clients quite a lot, like three sets, 12 reps, right? Like you go to the gym, you don't lift one weight and suddenly you look like the rock, you know, like it takes practice What's to build those muscles. And, <laughs> I, and mine, believe me, and mine, right? You know? <laughs> and, I think if I could go to the gym once and then just rock a nice meaty six pack for the rest of my career, I'd be stoked. I'd be yeah, the first in line. Here. But but it isn't doesn't work that it way. Doesn't. And it's like, but it's the same as that old sort of Zen statement. You know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. That's exactly right. There's things that we have to do in our life that don't necessarily come easily, but they're worth the work and that's really the journey of being human is to learn these things and to do these practices over and over again to improve who we are 100 percent, and that's the thing that i that really is something that i want to do going forward i want to teach people that you know i want to teach people that there is the ability to evolve yourself mm. you've got a choice to do that and you can either stay stuck in your patterns stay stuck in your thinking you can choose or you can choose not either way you're choosing yeah yeah even even not making a choice is a choice still choosing, aren't you? Right, like a, <laughs> absolutely choose to do nothing is still a choice yep 100 percent, mate we've been having the most delightful meandering conversation yep. and i'm looking at the time thinking I could keep chatting about all this for another couple of hours, but in respect for your time and our listeners, I guess if I was to get you to think about all of the challenges that you faced as a dad, all of the experiences you've had to this point, if you were thinking about what would be kind of the one place you would get guys to start. So anyone, dads listening to this, either experiencing challenges in some way in their life or just thinking, I just want to have a bit more of a joyful experience or be a bit better for my kids and my missus. Where would you start? What was the one tip for you to thrive? Just have fun. <laughs> Seriously, just have fun with it. And I'm guilty of not. I'm guilty of getting trapped in the whole expectation 
my kid will do this in that way and he'll do that when I tell him and he'll jump when I say or when I say jump he says how high you know all this bullshit lose the attachment lose the expectation and just have fun because god christ it goes quick I look at Finney's five now you know he's going to school mm. next year I mean and I'm not saying yeah. that with a, a ton of remorse or I'm saying that with, no, with a real open heart like I just want people to have fun Stop expecting your kids. They're kids, and I was so guilty of this. Expecting my kid to do something because I wanted to do it for me. Mm. Just have fun because they're a shit ton of fun. They are a shit ton of fun. They drive you mad, <laughs> but fuck, they're good fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But what clouds them is just I... the attachment. You know, we, we're attached to how we expect the kids to behave and perform and yeah and they'll, they'll do stuff when they're ready and, and hamish has taught me that you know it's, it's hamish who's taught me all not all these things but both my kids teach me but hamish has taught me stop having your expectation just go along with it have fun with it and love and love goes without saying yeah that's my tip no, that's have awesome. fun boys because your kids will love you for it so true man like i've that daughter i was telling you about who was you know three weeks in intensive care at the seven weeks premature and all that she's 15 she starts year 11 next year you know and i feel like it was you know i feel like it was three months ago she was in the hospital like like, where the hell has that gone right so my son with the funky toes we're talking about like he's 11 he's going to year six and he's like given a speech at school last week about becoming a school captain and like i'm thinking what like and you're right though it's unreal like i'm so proud of them both and i think they're just incredible little humans that i just freaking love but what's i can really resonate what you're saying because and this is i think since i've started doing a truckload of work on me and since i really really let go of my anger that's actually probably the big kicker for me. When I, I was a bloody angry man, same. I realized in about I'm kind of, you're looking at one. Right? I was exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. But when when you can let go of that and when you can be really present with your kids and just, like you say, look for the fun and have the I We sit at the dinner table every night. I keep looking this way, like that's looking down to the house. I'm up in the office. But when we sit at the dinner table, we just kill each other laughing all the time and it just makes the day so, so good. Yeah. And, you know, we're like every family. You have your bumpy moments. You have your moments where everyone's in a shit mood and you just have to all take a bit of space in different corners of the house. That's no right. worries. But that doesn't happen very often. And most of the time, my kids will remember this phase of our lives of just being a hell of a lot of fun, like you say. That's because it, to take that thing about the anger thing, that, that was something, and I can relate to that. When you say that, it just, it's just, I'm, I'm hearing that so clearly. And I think a lot of dads, mm. I think a lot of blokes, doesn't matter if you're dad or not, I think a lot of blokes are going to relate to that. But again, going back to Dan Withers, he taught me that I wanted to let go of this anger, but to let go of it, you have to understand where it comes from. So mm. he asked me, where's your anger coming I actually asked him, I said, Dan, where is this anger coming from? Why am I angry about yeah. this, that, and the other? And he explained it to me and he said, your anger is a belief system and your beliefs are being violated. And when they get violated, you get angry. And that's something that right. goes back to the world of NLP and call it self-work, call it whatever you want. But that's the yeah. thing for dads or 
blokes and whoever listens, you can be a mum, doesn't matter who you are. If you've got that anger in you, you can't put it down until you know where it's coming from. But that mm. starts with awareness. Where did that anger come from? And it's a violation of a belief system. A belief system is something we are taught, we're indoctrinated with it, we ingrain it when we grow up. Find out where the anger comes from, put the shit down. Yeah. Because I, yeah, that's, that's so true. And I can think about like the conversation I had with, with Lisa Carpenter about this. She said to me, and this is, you know, for everyone listening as well, like she said, have you actually accepted that you're an angry man? <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> fuck. no, no, I haven't accepted that actually until you just said that I realize I have to. She said, yeah, she said, you can't actually heal it and release it until you accept it. And she said, you know, you don't have to like it to accept it, but you have to accept it to heal it and move it on. Absolutely. And I think it's that same because otherwise I was living in this world of self-delusion and self-denial. I'm not angry. I just, you know, get a little bit shitty at the kids sometimes. I'm not angry, but it was like infused into everything. You like me? I was walking and around then I went, get fucked. I'm not angry. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. Listen to yourself, Charlie. Yeah. Just listen to yourself. Screaming at the kids, yeah. telling them to stop yelling at you. Yeah. Don't fucking yell in the house. <laughs> you know? But, <laughs> oh, I'll find a dollar for every time that happened but, to you. I tell you, I'll be a rich man. I know, and you, and then you hear yourself, and you're like, "Oh my god, I got to take myself outside and beat myself up." This is stupid. Yeah. So it's just funny, right? But that, like, you know, you're right. Getting to the core of what is causing this, and in my experience personally, it was often, it was often about an expectation that I had about the world, or it was about a judgment that I was afraid of getting as a dad. Get you, you know, time. like, yeah, you know, if if I my belief system was. To use your model, your friend Dan's model, my belief system was if my kids are great, use table manners, pardon me, polite when they speak to people, look people in the eye, you know, all that sort of stuff. If they do all those things, then that'll reflect really well on me as a parent and I won't get judged. That's right. That's exactly right. But as soon as they don't do those things, it's going to reflect badly if they go out into public and they show that and then other people are going to judge me and then I'm going to look bad. I don't want to look bad. That's the belief system that was in conflict for me. And that's what used to spark the vast majority of my anger. And I, yeah, that just just raised another, this conversation keeps evolving. But like, what's when you talk about that, about not being judged <laughs> and having an expectation of your kids, that's one of the things I see living here in regional Queensland is, you know, is a lot of kids here are kids anywhere. They're, they're ingrained to think and act a, a certain way. Like, no different to me. I was 40 before I really dove into thinking and analyzing and tearing apart who I thought I was. Mm. And I just wish that younger dads now could learn that your kid's on its own path, your kid's on its own journey, and you can influence it, but they're still on their own journey. And just release mm. that expectation. That doesn't matter if your kid's growing up in the bush and you want it to be a ringer, but it turns out to be a drag queen in Sydney. Or if your kid's, you know, being brought up in the city and they turn out wanting to work on a cattle station a million miles from Mary Horns in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's just that ability to right. release and let your kids follow their journey. Yeah. 
Oh, you know what, Charlie? This has been so fun. Yeah, and I, I love that I never I never know where these chats are going to go, but far out. This has been so lovely. And I want to say thank you for really taking us through a bit of that journey too about what you experienced. First of all, meeting Kate and then being the very persistent suitor, but then also, you know, having your two boys and, and the experience with Hamish when he was first diagnosed and what that's been like. Like I get that that's, you know, probably still to a point a little bit raw and a little bit tender because those sorts of moments in our lives kind of will always be. But I really think it's helpful to hear this sort of stuff and for dads to acknowledge that, you know, if they're going through some shit, they're not the only one going through some shit. That's right. You know? And that, and we, we all have that power in the moment to think, well, how can I, how can I let go of my own expectations? How can I put my anger down? How can I just have some fun with the kids to be a bit of a better dad? Absolutely. I mean, and, and I'm not perfect at it, mate, not by a long stretch. But I got the awareness around it. That's what I want to be. And you can't create it unless you're aware of it. Yeah, 100%. So these conversations really, I think, are great because it shows that there's a lot of nuance to this chat and it's like it's it's never done. It's not. It's, it's the same as going it. to the it's the same as going to the gym, you know, it's never done this work. It's, it's never this done. sort of inquiry into ourselves. I am going to uh say thank you again for your time. Oh, thanks for having and, me on, Israel. I appreciate it. I really do. Yeah. No, it's been Genuinely great. And um and whereabouts if, if anyone's in Rockhampton looking to buy or sell property, where do they look you up? Um, Ray White. So I'm, I'm affiliated with, with Ray White in Rockhampton. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. you can find me on there. Uh, Ray White Rocky. Oh, Google it. I don't even know what our website Perfect. is. Perfect. Yeah, Ray yeah. White Rocky. Um, I'll stick it in the show notes. We can get it to it later, but make sure people find it. But yeah, that's awesome. All right. And hopefully and, uh, later January, February, I should put a time frame on it and then actually commit to it. But that's one of the things out of TCP. Once I get through this round of TCP, I, I actually want to start, you know, something i'm not sure what it's going to be but i want to try and help dads of all sorts maybe dads with kids with disabilities i don't know there's, there's something in the pipeline there but when the time's right i'll share it with you and hopefully we can get it out there and yeah spread the message spread Mate, the absolutely um i'm here for it man and yeah would love to help bounce ideas around about any of that as it comes to to fruition so fantastic all right, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in for another Dad's Guide to Thrive interview. I have had such a fun time chatting. I hope you enjoyed it and stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks again, Charlie, Thanks and we'll see you all next time. See you guys. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Illuminating Lives podcast. Please help me reach more people by sharing this podcast with your loved ones and leaving me a great five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Remember, I work as a one-to-one -one coach and professional speaker, helping dads in business and leadership find more peace, feel less stress, and be the best parent, husband, and leader they can be. If you'd like to work with me or have me present to your organization, please contact me via my website or social media. All the links are in the show notes. Until next time, may you be free. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be loved. And may you live with ease.